Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. Today's episode uh, is with a gentleman named Darren Cash from Turner and Townsend. Darren is the director cost management and corporate occupier sector lead in Canada. Uh, We'd like to thank Darren for coming on. We were introduced to Darren through our partnership with the real estate forums. So thanks to them for for bringing Darren on. Looking forward to this. You know, Darren, this is a very topical conversation. I'm going to date stamp it right now for everyone that's listening. It's June 10th, 2021. People are getting their second vaccine. The Islanders qualified for the semifinals of the NHL Stanley Cup yesterday with 20,000 people in the stadium down there. There is this feeling of optimism that I think it's unparalleled, you know, since whatever it was, March 16th, 2020. So there is this optimism that we're all kind of coming out of the pandemic. Yay, we can we can actually feel really good about this. Hopefully, fingers crossed, I didn't jinx it. Unless you're a Leafs fan, Aaron. <laughs> Which I am. I can't believe you mentioned them. Um, let's leave it. Let's move on. So, so before, before we get into this conversation, and you know, of course, Darren's at Turner and Townsend, which is a sort of cost consultant advisory service. So they're gonna, we're going to talk about you know, what's transpiring in the development market across Canada and what's, you know, what costs are occurring and what, what, you know, just what the story is. But Darren, we always like to do this. Let's go back. You know, how did you get into commercial real estate? How did you get into cost consulting, uh, cost management? You know, where did you get your start? Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me on to this. It's going to be fun. Honestly, by accident, Aaron. I uh, did an economics degree at university in the UK and didn't really know what I was going to do with myself and went to the old man for advice, as a lot of us do. And he put me in touch with a few folk in the construction industry because he was a, or is a, an electrical engineer. I just landed a, a summer job in between second and third year at an organization called Gleeds, a large international construction consultancy, just like Turner and Townsend. And just, you know, fell in love with the job, did my summer there, enjoyed it, met some great people, went back to university, did my third year degree. Uh, I was in the good times of early 2000s where there was a boom across the globe. So I went back into it and then just just really enjoyed every minute of it from the start and, and found this role called cost consulting and got myself accredited through the RICS, Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors in 2006. And then decided that I was going to up sticks with my fiance at the time, uh, move out to the Middle East. Did that in 2008, lived there for five years. We got married, we had our first kid. And then we thought, you know what, let's, uh, let's go back in, and into a normal lifestyle because the Middle East and Dubai in particular was a bit abnormal in that regard. You're living in a little bubble. Uh, we really enjoyed it out there. We got a lot of friends still out there. So we decided on Canada, came here in 2012, been here ever since, got our second kid. We're about, well, hopefully soon going to get our Canadian citizenship and working for Turner and Townsend now, as you said, one of the largest, if not the largest global professional consultancy services and delivery of cost management and project management and enjoying every minute of it. It's been a blast. Well, you definitely stepped into Toronto or the Canadian market and an interesting point in our, in our real estate history. I mean, valuations have just done a, you know, a hockey stick since then, and activity has uh, skyrocketed, especially construction, which, of course, would, uh, would keep you, you very busy. Uh, Turner & Townsend's got a very global view, but how is Turner & Townsend doing the Canadian market in light of so many of our cities having such a robust uh, construction scene? Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right, Adam. Our business, uh, the Turner & Townsend name came into Canada 11 years ago, 2010. And they merged with an organization called CM2R. And we've, as a business, we've kind of followed that hockey stick, as you've just referenced, as a business. So originally in Toronto, then we opened up offices out west, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, opened up our Ottawa office five or six years ago, I think it was. Just, you know, two weeks ago, opened up our Montreal office. And in that time, we've gone from a team of 20, 30, as we were, to now we're 250 plus. And a lot of that growth and trajectory has really come in the last five or six years as we've seen really the urban, the, the MB, Montreal, Vancouver, Toronto 
cities in particular just go through this incredible boom from a construction real estate perspective. Our business also touches infrastructure and natural resources. Those are our three segments, along with uh, or two segments, along with real estate as our third. And our business has really grown in, in each of those. So we've now gone from a pure real estate firm now to not quite a third, a third, a third. Still very much real estate being a dominating sector for our segment for us. But natural resources and infrastructure is catching up really quick. And from that, our pie is growing in the market. Our brand awareness has been growing in the market. And it's just been a, we've been going on this journey with our clients over on the lending side, on the development side, institutional side, public side. It's been a great time to be here in, in the country because, you know, if you look back to 2008, I wasn't here, but the stories are that of the G7 economies, the Canadian economy is the one that stood up to the most scrutiny during the global financial crisis. Investor confidence was always there in Canada, but it became more so, more prevalent from 2008. And that trend's just continued. And so we've been, uh, we've been supporting our clients now through some of the more complex projects that are out there. All, all the way down to single-family home developments or some of the perhaps what are considered to be the le- least complex projects. But the service that you get from us will remain the same. And, and it's just been a really exciting journey for us. We're going to transition quickly, guys, uh, listeners, into into the you know what happened through COVID with the development. But I got to pull on a string real quick. Darren, you know, you've had some, you've been bouncing around or you've had exposures to different geographies. And you just mentioned, you know, that, that, Canada kind of stood up against the, uh, you know, the, the, the credit financial crisis, you know, better than most or all. And we always, you know, at least internally, and I'm sort of introverted Canadian. So I always just assumed it was because we're so conservative and that's why. Do you think that's true from your perspective? 100%. And is that true in, in, your, in your world, in the development world? I mean, just do we not take the same kind of risk that you've seen other developers take from different countries? Well, I, I can give it two bookends. Canada, for sure, there's definitely a lot more diligence that goes into deals. And I think the Canadian economy, if you look at the P3, procurement option in particular, has learned a lot of lessons from the fallacies that the UK and the Australian procurement model had following the PPP model. And so there's a, a lot more due diligence on that side. You know, the, the role that you guys play in the market when you're looking for project monitors to come in on pretty much every deal and do the due diligence up front, along with the construction monitoring. That doesn't exist in all markets. So for every deal that, that you lend into, you, your expectation is, is that there is a monitor present, acting as your eyes and ears on the ground during the construction process. That's one bookend. Go to this, the, the other bookend, which was working in the Middle East, and I worked on some phenomenal projects out there. But the, the diligence wasn't quite as robust, shall we say, and and. You know, whilst the, the clients there are extremely, extremely entrepreneurial and extremely intelligent, they're very much, uh, the, the, the governance process is a bit different, shall we say. So I, I'm not saying it's, it's better or worse, but certainly I don't think it's a bad statement what you made, Aaron, in terms of the Canadian Conservatives. And I think it's going to stand us in good stead. I'm, just, I'm, prou- I'm proud of that. I don't know why, but I'm just really proud of that. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead, Adam. Uh, the 2021 phrase of the year. <laughs> All right, Joel, edit out the part where I started speaking on mute. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick it up right there. Yeah, I do, I do know Darren when I speak with my uh, with my American clients. That is uh, feedback I get. I'm not sure if it's negative or positive that uh, compared to our American counterparts in the lending universe, the Canadian lenders are uh, see a lot more monsters under the bed and uh, structure loans accordingly. So I think yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> I think that it, is, it might be pretty universal here. Uh, just for a quick le- a lending 101, uh, you know, Aaron's already teased it. I'll tease it again. We are going to jump into what happened to construction costs during COVID. But just as a lending 101, the way we work with uh, you know groups like Darren's is a borrower approaches us. We structure a loan. We agree to advance X amount of money uh, for a construction project. But to mitigate that risk, because as we already have stated, we are conservative, <laughs> we need a, a, a highly trained professional to oversee and monitor and go through the minutiae and account for every dollar and try and catch problems before they become you know, big problems. If there's, if there's overages, if there's, if there's 
they're slowing down on timelines. You know, we, we want to know right away. We don't want to find out at the end of the project, all the money spent and there's still, uh, you know, seven more stories to go. So we typically would engage a, uh, you know, a group like Darren's and I guess a full disclaimer, we have uh, worked with Turner Townsend quite a bit in a lot of our projects and uh, it's it worked out very well. And uh, they keep track of the million moving parts that uh, comprise a construction site. So Lending 101, I'm sure most people knew that, but just in case, I thought I'd throw that out there so you can get the most out of this uh, conversation. All right. So that being stated, let's uh, let's get on to to what happened to construction costs during COVID. You know, let's uh, let's go back to you know March of of 2020 onwards, Darren. If you kind of describe the environment uh, from a construction cost perspective right before COVID, and then what uh, happened in the first you know three, four, or five, six months. Yeah, I mean, what a year, 15 months it's been. So we were, as a business, merrily going along our, our path, February, March time, planning for our fiscal year, which starts in May. You know, hearing the stories, the news about what was going on in the Far East. And I think a lot of us wasn't, weren't really paying a lot of attention to it, and, and obviously incorrectly, as it has transpired. But we were getting some serious flags being raised by our businesses out in in the Far East saying that, hey, just so everybody's clear, every single manufacturing facility in China is shutting down. This is an issue. Be prepared for this to start impacting global supply chain, movement of goods, physically getting uh, the goods produced. So when we, you know, when we started getting that feedback, as it started going across from east to west, you know, we started hitting Europe. Our businesses in Europe were starting to be impacted. So, you know, we obviously, like everybody, were starting to do some scenario planning. And we came a little bit, in, well, a bit too inward focused. And again, with the advent of social media and people's thirst for knowledge to be instantaneous, a lot of people were putting out reports, putting out opinion pieces, thought leadership in inverted commas, and really suggesting that, you know, the cliff was here, the world's ending from a construction real estate perspective, shut up shop now, you know, hunker down, it's going to be rough. And that obviously breeds uncertainty in the market. So in April, I vividly remember this, we had a couple of large tenders managing a, lot, a couple of large projects that were going out to tender. And our clients were very unsure as to whether or not they should do this. Because at that time, to your question, Adam, you know, the city of Toronto in particular, but, but the major urban centres in the country had been going through a phenomenal growth over the past, well, we said it, right, five, ten years. And that was showing no signs of slowing down anytime soon. So we felt at the time, uh, the clients felt at the time that they'd reached a peak. And so if they were to just delay a week or two or a month, that this, when this cliff came, that they would avail of lower tender prices, you know, competitiveness coming, competitiveness coming back into the market and people being a little less greedy without using that word as something that we necessarily believe in. And we actually had a couple of clients that, uh, that took advantage of that. They, they did go out to tender. They, they delayed it a week or two. They went out to tender. And there was a bit of uncertainty there in the market in April. You know, the clients that we do, that we helped get their projects off the ground, that they did secure some pretty competitive prices back from the market because, you know, the trades, the contractors, the suppliers, there was no playbook for this. No one had any idea what was going to happen. So they were looking at this, these projects, which were long-term projects, 12, 24, 36 months, and saying, we can, you know, fill our book of work for next year. And whilst we don't know what's going to happen in terms of project cancellation and we just don't know what the future holds, it was just a it was a, an opportunity for them to get work in, in the door. And then you wind the clock forward then to May and into June and, and this cliff that everybody, most people thought was coming, it didn't come in the construction market. It was coming in the, you know, you read all the press at the time, the global economy was, was uh, the GDPs were, were declining rapidly. Obviously, hospitality, leisure, retail sectors were really taking a big hit. Store mills were shutting down, steel factories were shutting down, manufacturing facilities shutting down. 
for whatever reason, the industry and the construction industry in Canada kind of the momentum kept going, which kind of brings us on to the some of the provincial legislation that was put out, which was construction remained essential for all intents and purposes. There were certain parts of the of the industry which were shuttered through the legislation. But when you really looked at that essential construction or the essential list of, of workers or, or, or projects that can, could continue, there were very few percentage-wise that were actually forced to shut down. So things kind of carried on. Developers regained their confidence. Um, people were still employed, gainfully employed. Designers continued on designing. And then you had this situation where us three, we couldn't go and do what we wanted to do with our families or we couldn't go and meet up with friends for dinner or whatever we'd like to do. So we had a, a bit of money burning in our pocket. So we'd either be increasing our funds into our RESPs or our, our RSPs or we were deciding to you know, go and build a new deck or do whatever we wanted to do and spend the money that was burning a hole in our pocket. So then you had the pension funds then were getting all these additional funds coming into their portfolio and they often have to invest it somewhere. Real estate has often always been a, a very you know, sure thing for them from an investment portfolio. So they were then starting to prop up the market that way. So developers, again, particularly the REITs of those pension funds were continuing on with their projects. And then you were getting the likes of us guys trying to build our debt badly and burning up all the lumber that was on offer because we were bored, basically, because we didn't have nothing else to do. So you then had this situation then in May, June, July, that we started seeing the commodity prices and the construction prices starting to, to, starting to spike. And again, it was, uh, it was then that people realized that this was something that became a dichotomy. There was serious pains being suffered by a lot of people across the globe. But for whatever reason, the construction or real estate market and infrastructure markets were remaining pretty strong. So, I mean, let's, let's just keep going. So, so we kind of get into first wave, second wave, third wave. I mean, there were, and there were some pain points. I, I, I think I recall that some of the provincial legislation, at least in Ontario, but I, I suspect it was in other jurisdictions that if you were below grade, you couldn't, you couldn't proceed with construction. If you were doing fixturing, so if you had kind of topped off the building, you couldn't compete, you couldn't complete any fixturing. And so they were, I mean, that's all COVID related. If you're underground, I guess, you know, the air is not as circulated. If you're inside a building, the air is not as circulated. So there was some, some delays or there had been some delays, yeah. I guess, through, you know, the, the, the winter and the new year and into 2021. No, absolutely. You're absolutely right, Aaron. There, there were delays. And again, there was no playbook for this for the trades and, and the GCs. So, you know, we, we heard things at the start of, of the pandemic saying that it's a minimum of 25% productivity drop on projects. And again, at the time, our advice to our clients was, well, everything has to be actual loss. It has to be proven. So don't accept anything at this time. You know, acknowledge that there is going to be an impact because there was going to be, but don't agree or disagree with a, with a statement at the time. Just play it out and see if we can work collaboratively with the market to make sure that you know any claim is fair and reasonable. And I think the one thing that we've seen in the last ten or twelve months is actually our industry evolve from a from a collaboration perspective. We've everyone's been in in this in it together. Right? There's been pain points for everybody. And there's been a lot more collaboration and conversation around the impact of COVID on productivity, health and safety, cost increases, you know, anything that is related to elongation of schedules because of you know physically getting people up a building if you're doing a downtown condo or a downtown commercial building. You know, you're not going to cram people into a manhoist anymore. It has to be done in a much more health and safety conscious way. But then you've also got the projects that are shovel ready on the infrastructure side, which the public sector pushed out that, you know, you, you could go for days without seeing a colleague because you're on a, on a horizontal civil project and you're almost naturally social distance. So, you know, it was trying to weigh up, yes, in the downtown core for downtown projects, you're probably going to get a higher loss of productivity, which is going to impact the schedule, which is going to impact cost. But then when you aggregate that out with a, a much more uh, simpler project in the rural areas that uh, is two, three stories or even a horizontal project, you know, the impact of productivity is negligible. So 
it was treating it on a case-by-case basis, making sure that the contractors were clear about the requirements and the contract as it related to delay claims, and then just sitting around a table and making sure that it was transparent, that people weren't uh, making a profit out of the uh, delay claims, that it was fair and reasonable. And, you know, I have to say that having spent almost 20 years in the industry um, and us having a reputation for being adversarial at times in our conversations, not us as a business, but we as a construction industry, I was actually quite pleasantly surprised by some of the conversations I was personally involved in because it was more collaborative and it came to a, a fair and reasonable solution at the end. And we all moved on and the projects were finished or they progressed rapidly when they were back open. And everyone came out of it with a um, with some pain, but less pain than dragging it out in the court for 12 months. Well, can we um, try and attach some numbers to some of this? I mean, there's obviously, as you said, jurisdiction by jurisdiction had different results. And there's, there's, delay, there's delay costs, there's hard construction cost increases, productivity, delays in approvals and zoning. There's a lot of competing factors all pushing costs in the wrong direction. But can you uh, try and quantify, you know, some of the increases in some of those categories that people would have seen in some of the the worst hit jurisdictions? Yeah. So from an aggregate perspective, productivity side, if we if we blend in downtown projects and the rural projects and vertical versus horizontal, on average, we've seen an eight to ten percent drop in productivity, which has been fairly consistently demonstrated through schedule analyses and and forensic examinations of baseline versus updated schedules. And clients have generally become accepting of that. Some have been higher, of course, depending on the project. Some have been lower. But that's been the general trend across each of the major cities. Can you convert that to... Cost? I'm not asking for... Yeah, yeah, exactly. What does that that implicate? If I I had a $10 million project, just to make it really simple... Yeah. What's what's my loss or what's my change in, in, in pro forma? Well, I'm terrible at math. So let's go, let's go simple for, uh, for this for a second. So if you look at a unit cost of, for anything, on, on average, you could argue somewhere, well, not argue, you can 50 to 60% of that cost will be labor. So if your labor has gone up by 10%, then your project, oh, sorry, productivity has gone down by 10% then your overall cost of that unit will have gone up by 5%, say. And that's just very crude. So that 5%, in theory, will have gone straight to the bottom line. But you've got certain products which are more heavily focused on material and fabrication, and you've got so much are a lot more labor-intensive. So that's why. So that labor percentage of a unit rate can be anywhere between 40 and 60%. So you can get anywhere from between 3 to 7 3 to 8% as being straight onto your bottom line pro forma, which is something which, as a developer, you can't control that. That you know, you can go into a conversation and justify that, but as I say, on average, that's what we've seen as the productivity drop in the projects, and that's gone straight onto the bottom line for the developers. Then, just to bring that back then to overall cost escalation. So, if you look back fifteen years, twenty years. And we get asked the question all the time, what's the escalation cost going to be for the next five years or so? And I'll be honest, Adam, Aaron, if we knew this, we'd be gazillionaires and we'd be lying on a beach in Barbados somewhere. The, the true answer, true answer is we don't know. Nobody knows. But what we do do is go back in history, look at trends, and that's where our expertise comes in and really isolate it and look at the price. What's the form work doing? And we'll come on to lumber, I'm sure, at some point. What's formwork doing? What's steel doing? What's copper doing? You know, wh- how are the fabric? How are the plants fabricating and handling units? And you isolate it that way. But if you aggregate it out over fifteen years, the average escalation, building cost escalation, which is different to inflation, the average building cost escalation is somewhere between three and four percent. So most cost consultants, if you ask them, will say that the average inflation or escalation rate for the next one, two, three years will be somewhere between three and six percent, because that's what it's based on, based on trends and, and averages over the past. But then when you narrow that down further into residential and non-residential, and you look at last year, Montreal was a roughly around six percent for residential. Calgary was eight percent. And when you think of Calgary in the past couple of years, 
you think, okay, the market's a bit depressed, activity's low, you know, it, it's, a, it's a heavily dependent on, on oil and gas, and that's 12, 15 months ago. I mean, I think price of oil dropped about 20 or 30 bucks a barrel from memory. We're up at 74, 75, I think, this week. So you think, okay, well, that's interesting. Why, why, why 8% in, in Calgary, in Ottawa, which has been a booming market now for a few years, residential prices were up at 10%. And most of that was driven by lumber. I'm sure we'll come on to lumber. We'll perhaps park lumber and we'll come back to that. Again. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, that's yeah. front of mind for everybody. So that's residential. And then when you look at non-residential, again, a similar pattern where it's a average of 2 2 to 3% for, for ICI projects over the last 10 or 15 years. Ottawa, again, leading from the front, just under 4%. Montreal, again, strong economy over the past couple of years have, have become fiscally prudent and have got a, a lot of intake there from, from the tech sector. So they, they've had a spike there in, in building construction escalation. Yeah. But then Calgary and interestingly, Vancouver was down at around 1% last year. And Toronto, again, was around the average of, of 2.5%. So with the exception of Calgary and Vancouver in the, in the ICI space, every of the major urban centers for both residential and non-residential was way above the 10, 15-year average. And some of that is to do with what we've just mentioned in relation to labor and productivity drops. Material escalation was another one, shortage of, shortage of supply, logistics issues, getting materials from A to B, all that kind of bubbled into 2020 as being a year which was, again, used the phrase dichotomy of what was actually got looking at the market, what was actually going on when you see GDP dropping by 30% in most yeah. uh, developed economies. It, it became a really difficult period of time for us as professionals to be able to forecast and for clients really to understand it because, you know, obviously they read the news like everybody else and they see the word recession being thrown around on every single news channel out there. But yet here we are as a professional consultancy telling them, well, actually, no, you, you, your project's actually going to go up by an extra 2% versus what you thought. And they couldn't necessarily marry the two. So it was a difficult period of time for us to, to really get our message across. Let me jump in, Darren, and just kind of do a tying some themes together. One, ICI is industrial commercial investment real estate, which is basically non-residential. We call it non-ICI and ICI. For those that are keeping track, I think Darren was giving us sort of a good explanation on the fact that you know the residential side have seen significant increases above historical trends of 3 to 4% versus the ICI real estate hasn't, right? I mean, it, it, based yeah. on what you're saying, and, I, and, I, and I'm just, I, you correct me if I'm wrong, but a part of that is, you know, not a lot of the ICI real estate is lumber built and we're going to get to lumber not a lot of forming right not a lot of right. not a lot of underpinning so not digging deep not a lot of windows typically i mean i guess if you're talking office there is but that was one of those items that that saw a quick increase at some point historically so there's just you know there's it's almost like there's two different industries when you're talking about development there's the ICI and the non-ICI which which i'm sure is the way that that you think about it before we move into some of the stuff that's going on today so we're we're kind of like i kind of set it up at the beginning of the of the interview you know, we're we're kind of we're skating out of pandemic and we're moving into what we hope is is back to the next normal. But before we go there, I mean, let's just let's just acknowledge it. It's a constant theme in every every discussion that Adam and I are, are partaking in right now is that the amount of liquidity in the marketplace mm -hmm. is just insane. And you talked about it, right? About you know, pension funds were just earning a whole bunch of cash. They got to do something with it. We were saving tons of money and buying you know, building decks, and so that's contributing to some of the factors. And then I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there were some people that were hesitant to get into the marketplace at some point because you know they might have owned the land or were thinking about buying land, but just didn't know how to pro forma. And, and, and actually, let me go there just before we do it, just for those that are that are kind of hold on holding on to the rope through this discussion. Costs are kind of, I mean, Darren's expertise is the cost side of things, right? What is what is it going to cost to build whatever you want to build? And he's working with architects to do the designs, and of course, I'm sure you're working with entitlements. You have zoning experts in your in your department. Like it's it's everything and everything to build, which I think you could you you, you were as you're indicating in your previous comments. You you were you had 
you know, obviously it's not an exact science, but you have a pretty good idea. Like you're watching trends and you have a pretty good sense of what's coming. And as you indicated, you were talking to your colleagues in China and you kind of knew that there was supply chain issues. So you were projecting that there might be some challenges. One of the biggest uncertainties, I think, that this is what's, you know, a challenge for our investors, our clients, my clients and your clients, our clients, is what is the, what, what am I going to be able to sell my condo units for? What can I rent my apartment buildings for? I mean, industrial is a little bit different because they're just building it. It's like, you know, the field of dreams, build it and they will come. That's a separate, that's a separate conversation altogether. But there was uncertainty. There is uncertainty. Like I, we just don't know where rents are going, where they are. I mean, you don't know, even know where valuations are if you're a merchant builder, because you don't even know what things are going to trade at in six months or 18 months or three years when you, when you complete the project. Same with condos. I mean, I guess there's a pre-sale component to it, but you know, there's, there's, it's just, there's such uncertainty. So I guess that I'm just kind of laying that out as a foundation for the next part of the conversation, because there is so much money coming in. And so people want to deploy that capital. They need to achieve yields, but I, I'm, I get the sense that those yields are shrinking because they just, it's almost like, I can't just sit on this pile of cash. I got to get it out. And then, and then maybe from your perspective, Darren, how is that implicating costs? How is that implicating, you know, demand in, in the marketplace? Yeah. I remember chatting a couple of years ago to a client, Sharon name Nameless, and they said that they have a fairly global portfolio in terms of where their investments lay. And they said, look, in Europe at the time, we were getting negative yields, maybe just on the positive side, but we just had to put our money somewhere. So, and then in Canada, and then the cap rate at the time, you get three and three and three quarters or four, maybe. So it's like, well, okay, we're going to put most of our portfolio in Canada. And I haven't been following the cap rate too closely over the past few months, but you know, I think you guys are probably the best place to advise of what that is. But it's, you know, that's tight. It's tight. It's, it's, it's tight. Yeah. But the Canadian market fundamentals have remained strong throughout all of this. The crises that we've we've experienced in the past twelve or fifteen months have nothing to do with the economy, which is the biggest difference, obviously, to the global financial crisis, which had everything to do with the you know, the way that liquidity in the market was transitioned through the US in particular. So the market fundamentals remain strong. There is, to your point, Aaron, so much pent-up demand in the market, foreign investment into the country as well, local investment. You know, we've got some of the largest pension funds in the world within the Canadian economy. And so, you know, the messaging, I think, throughout the last 30 minutes may sound a bit alarmist, but the the messaging is very much from our side, you know, don't panic. Yes, this is a bit of a perfect storm, but we can help guide you just as, you know, like everybody, guide you through the next six months, 12 months, give you what we know, work with the lending community, work with the design community, you know, make sure, work with the construction community and make sure that there is collaboration in the market because there is, we anticipate in the third quarter of this year, once everybody or everybody, the majority of, of the population has received their second dose of the vaccine for those that want it, we will see a very, very large shift towards, right, let's go. We're going to move this forward now, which will potentially cause an issue because historically there's been a shortage of labor within Canada, skilled labor within Canada. Bill Force, as I'm sure you read and the, and the listeners to the podcast will, will read the Bill Force reports showing that over the next 10 years, there's going to be 90 or 100,000 retirees in the industry, which we're going to struggle to replace. There's usually a net migration of 100,000 into the city of Toronto. And I think, I don't know the exact stats, but that's obviously way down in the last 12 months because of the immigration restrictions that have been put in place. So when these projects get going, I can only speak for our business and say, we've never been busier. I'm sure you know, First National are the same, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are the same. We are very busy right now, and we, we've hired, probably going to get this wrong, and I'll probably get shouted at by our internal recruiter, but I'm pretty sure we've hired somewhere in the region of 40 or 50 people since the start of the pandemic, which may not sound a lot, but when at the time we were 200 people and now we're 250, and that's 20% of our staffing that's come into the business in the last 12 months, and we've had to onboard them in a virtual environment, which has not come without its challenges either. And we're a very technical business in terms of our delivery of, of project and program and cost management services. So we, you know, we're, we're trying to walk our clients through these scenarios 
over the next three months, noting what you said, Aaron, about there being significant liquidity in the market and making sure they're going in with their eyes wide open. You know, we had a call with one of our clients just yesterday and they're, they're saying, we're going to delay a year. What guarantees are you going to give Turner and Townsend that this will have, have, have kind of calmed down by then? And I said, we can't give any guarantees. I said, well, what we can say is that we're going to track this, absolutely, but it may be that in a year's time, you're going to have the annual escalation anyway of 3.5%. So what we're talking about right now is an extra 2 or 3%. So is there an offset in financing, an offset in delay of revenue or cash flow, whatever it might be from your side, that's going to offset that 2 to 3%? Can you better yourself? Because you're not talking about 8%. You're just talking about the difference between what it typically would be on any given year based on trends versus the, the average what it's been just in one year. Right. So it's uh, it's going to be an interesting few months. I refer to lemmings in all this and, and those that jump off the par- off the cliff with the parachute first. And if, if the parachute opens and people are OK, you'll see a lot more people follow. So we'll see. what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to be the, the one taking that jump? Who wants to uh, be taking the jump? Exactly. Let's jump into that a little bit. So no guarantees. As you said, we're not holding to you to a guarantee on this, but since the cost pressure has been pretty sustained since, uh, well, even pre-COVID, but then amplified during COVID and up till now, what do you think will be the first things to give in the market to start relieving some of that pressure? Where do you see this, this easing off a touch and people can really uh, quell their, their mild panic? From a personal perspective, Adam, I really want that to be home buying. Because I really want to buy a house in the city of Toronto, and I can't afford to because of the current uh, house (laughs) prices. But you know, we've been talking certainly since I've been in in the city about Toronto being in a in a bubble when it comes to condo prices. And I think when I moved here, sales prices were probably at around five or six hundred bucks a square foot, and here we are now, probably talking twelve, thirteen, fourteen hundred on average now. So if it was a bubble then, what are we talking about now? But there's going to come a point where pro formas don't work. And, you know, I think developers will, will tell you that that's getting closer and closer by the day. Average construction prices of, of condos have gone up exponentially over the past few years, mostly driven by critical capacity or, 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 significant, or trades being at or near critical capacity and thinking formwork, excavation trades you know they, they've long been very very busy but there is going to come a point where that supply and demand equilibrium can't shift anymore because a people won't be able to afford the sales price that's required in order for the pro forma to work for a developer to make profit and therefore there's a potential that developers will curtail some of their house building units which will then lead to a drop in demand which will then lead to you know that equilibrium in the old economics axis moving back down towards the bottom left of the of the axis. So again, is that going to happen? Absolutely no idea. I'm just being honest. <laughs> well, and, and, <laughs> and Darren, the, the other variable that needs to be considered is income, right? Because that drives oh, right. a lot of the ability. And you know, I, I again, like just I just could play throw a dart against a wall. But if people are working from home three days a week, that means office employers need less office space, yeah. and hopefully they would transfer that cost savings to their employees so their employees can afford higher rents and you know you know pay them more for houses but i mean so that's an interesting like, one who knows yeah. right yeah so. i look forward to my raise Aaron, because i know that you're part of that discussion <laughs> at uh, first national no, so no, no. thank you for you, that tip <laughs> you eat you eat what you kill out of you eat what you kill <laughs> that's, um, an, that's an interesting one about the sorry just to just to dwell yeah, on that go ahead. a little bit Aaron, about the commercial office space so you know you read all these all these articles that the commercial office is dead Long live the commercial office space. And we know from what's happening from our client, we have a lot of global clients that we work with that have a base in the US and in Canada. It's just going to go to a hybrid model. And so, yes, there is going to be an aspect of large real estate owners or occupiers probably diluting their space. We had one conversation with one client this week that said they're likely to dilute their space by 20%. But we saw some statistics being thrown out that it was 60, 70, 80%. And even if they lose that 20%, it's going to be reconditioned into something by somebody. I think there's still an appetite. I've certainly got a huge appetite for bringing the team into the office 
maybe not five days a week. I've never been a, a driver for that personally. I've always believed that, you know, you can work wherever you're the most productive. But we as a business and as an industry at large, we are collaborative by nature. So we have to be in the office. I mean, just to get a report out now, it used to take 20 minutes. And now it takes two hours because you've got to schedule in a 20-minute conversation with somebody that you used to be able to turn around to in the chair behind you and have that conversation. So, you know, a lot of people, a lot of leadership papers out there saying that the commercial office space is going to be the first to go. I'm also sure. No, I, hey, Darren, I totally agree. I, I had a management meeting earlier. We're getting off track. We're going to get to Lumber to finish this thing off before we go. <laughs> but we were talking about how we feel like we're more efficient. People are working longer hours. They're getting up. They're going straight to their desk. And we're getting emails at 7 a.m. And, and 8 p.m. And I, and I just, okay, well, we're working longer. Are we working more efficiently? And I think that's, we just, it's so hard. It's just, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a variable that's very, very difficult to track. <laughs> let's, let's finish off with Lumber. And I've got a facetious question. We live in a country with probably as many trees as any other country in the world. Why the hell is lumber so expensive? <laughs> is, it, is this the facetious question that you said you were going to have? It's interesting. I got a response for you. And I didn't even know you were going to answer that question. It's called pine beetles. So apparently, if you, oh. if you, if you read about this, and we've been, we've been obviously very intrigued in the same question. Pine beetles have apparently decimated about 10 years supply of, of lumber in B.C., you can't just blame something that's like literally the size of a grain of rice. I mean, that's probably unfair to the pine beetle. But when you do that with the likes of ourselves that are, you know, hammering a nail into a two by four for their new deck or for their extension to their home, add into the fact that sawmills in BC were shut down for quite a while and are just ramping up back to what they would consider to be 100% productivity pre-COVID levels. And then you've got to add on to that the post COVID levels, the pent-up demand that we spent a bit of time talking about now, price of lumber just shot through the roof. You know, the statistics are eye-watering. 248% year-on-year for, uh, I think it was hardwood, softwood, 148%. But interestingly, what and, and so we've done studies on this, right? You, you got the, particularly on the low-rise residential, this has had a serious impact on pro formers for developers, like a serious impact. Just simply a house going up behind us here in, in our neighborhood. He had to start for two months building it because he couldn't get he couldn't get his studs, couldn't get his floor joists, couldn't get anything. Um, and if he did, it was going to cost him 30% more than what it was going to cost him the day before. But just in the last three weeks, global lumber prices have dropped by 30%. So we just eat the, the pine beetle? <laughs> because, yeah, the pine beetles are gone. <laughs> <laughs> But, that, but that's, you know, historically that you've always seen the peaks and troughs of commodity prices. That's just the nature of them. And this is kind of, again, going back to the underlying theme of don't panic. There is an expectation, if you read the economists and the press and the people that actually know what they're talking about, that lumber prices will level off this year. They will start to come down next year. And we've already started to see that in the last two, three weeks that, they, you know, physically going out to buy a piece of lumber, two by four, or, or purchasing plywood or whatever you might be purchasing, it's cheaper now than what it was two weeks ago. So, you know, again, keeping an eye on that, prudent cost management, engaging the right people to support you through your projects. You have an eye on this and, and you essentially pay for that service. It's absolutely imperative to make sure that they're on the ball and that they're giving proactive advice instead of this kind of point in time we had a client the other day that came back and said, hey, we did this uh, budget back in 2019. Can you give us an update for 2021? Because the the, the, uh, the tenders came back in way higher than the budget we had. It was just frustrating because I don't even know how that would even be a, a comprehensible thing to do, that you're basing it, your tenders on a, on a budget that was done two years ago, let alone after a, a global pandemic. And it's just making sure that messaging gets out there to the listeners of this, but also wider that, Prudal fiscal cost management is absolutely paramount to make sure that projects come in on budget. So it is uh, it is interesting with the lumber in particular, because we're all in real estate, so we'll talk about construction costs all day long, and uh, you know that makes perfect sense. But my Facebook is littered with lumber memes, and it's a real topic of conversation for a lot of non-real estate people. So I think in the sense of trying to instill calm in the masses, Lumber prices coming down will go the longest because that has got the spotlight on it as the poster oh, yeah. boy 
for cost increases. So I'm glad to hear that's uh, that's coming off because uh, it will keep the populace uh, much more calm about the future of, of our destruction <laughs> industry. <laughs> but I think that is a good note to end off on, uh, you know, is, is don't panic and yeah, lumber's coming down. So if nothing else for that reason, don't uh, don't panic. But Darren, this has been uh, super, super interesting. Aaron and I have been, you know, flirting with the topic of construction costs for a while on the podcast. So I'm glad we got to do a deep dive with somebody as knowledgeable as yourself. So thanks for sharing all your all your knowledge today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Up next, we do have the uh, the CRE after show where Aaron and I will share our thoughts on the episode that just uh, just went down. So stick around for that. Darren, thanks again. And of course, thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Thanks, Darren. That was awesome. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, guys. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where uh, Adam and I digest the conversation we just had with um, with Darren Cash from Turner and Townsend. You know, I I mean, I love that conversation. It's just one of those things that is so topical, particularly when there's multiple cost items escalating in price rapidly, be it labor and wood in this particular instance. But it's one of those things that just historically kind of pops its head up as a, as a major item in real estate circles and then kind of dies down and then pops its head back up. And I mean, he touched on it. Forming was a, a major issue that I think I can't remember the exact numbers. I'll make them up, but it was like a hundred percent price increase in forming at one point, the cost of glass has gone up. There's all sorts of things that always kind of just, for whatever economic supply chain, global force reasons, things get expensive. <laughs> I mean, let's go, let's start from the backwards first. Like the, what was it? Pine beetle? I can't even remember what it was called. It was the, yeah, the, pine, the, pine beetle. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> there was some bug that was eating a whole bunch of wood and that's the reason the price of wood is up, you know, 150, 200%. Like, I mean, who could have predicted that, right? Oh, a 10-year supply of lumber is a, a stunning amount. I mean, I know even here in Ontario, you walk around, there's signs about invasive species being, you know, pine beetles and others, but you don't actually contemplate that, especially somewhere in BC, that is just a sea of trees, that uh, it would have that kind of impact. It's it's kind of crazy. I mean, everything else he said, you kind of knew, or the reasons why it went up, you kind of knew that makes, you know, makes logistics sense or makes logical sense. But uh, I did not see the pine beetle coming at us. That well, was uh, and, that was interesting, and I and I wanted to poke him, but I didn't think it was. I, maybe you'd have the numbers, but I mean, you, I mean, you mentioned you know everybody's building a deck, but I mean, you have to build to impact the you know global supply of wood, right? Like it just that just you know uh, Adam and I we're are, are you know soon another episode is going to come out where we're we're talking to an individual who who is a, a major player in the U.S. apartment development market, and you'll discover he's having the exact same issue. This is not a Canadian. You know, challenge. This is a global supply of wood challenge. So I, I mean, clearly we're a major supplier of wood to the U.S. So I, clearly it trickles downhill because of that pine beetle issue. Uh, but it's not just Canada; it's all over the place. So anyway, very very fascinating. The labor one, I think, just needs a little bit of exploration for us because Darren talked about it about how it's. I think he said, you know, there's there's a report that's coming out, and I wish I'd written down the name of the report to reiterate here. And maybe we'll get it in the show notes if we can find it. But it's a, it's a, it is a report that that talks about just the supply of labor and, and what's transpiring in, in the construction labor industry. And it's true. There's a hundred thousand people retiring in the next sort of short duration, and that's a big chunk. That's not like you know it's a four million four million person industry, and you lose a hundred thousand. It might be a five hundred thousand person industry, and you're losing a hundred thousand. Like it's a big chunk, and those are all. The, the experienced ones, the ones that have been doing it for 30 years that know that if you just, you know, bang here with a hammer, it's going to solve your problem rather than spending thousands of dollars trying to fix it, right? Like, it, you know, I'm, I'm making it too simple, but you know what I mean. And so, and then of course, you've got the younger generation that we just went through a pandemic that have all left trying to find jobs somewhere else. And so drawing them back, like the, the labor issue, I think, you know, as, as he indicated, and I know that the messaging was positive and that, you know, let's just stay the course, everything's going to be good. I think the wood thing, you know, supply and demand will fix that. I think labor is a little bit more challenging to educate, you know, source, educate, you know, and train to get into into the the, the construction labor market. And I know there's lots of unions and, and other players that are trying to solve that problem, have identified it and are working on it. But it is just one of those things that it, it just, it's like ebbs and flows. I just feel like that's a much longer ebb and flow than, 
you know, supply and demand impacts on, you know, commodities. Yeah, you're not going to see a 30% drop over the course of a week. But it's actually funny when um, you were just describing this now, we had been talking to one of the uh, union presidents and we were going to have this topic to, on, our, on our show about uh, two or three years ago. So I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he's a high profile union head. I've seen him speak numerous places and every time he's been raising the alarm bell. He goes, there's all, you know, we're our age demographic is top heavy. And when they're gone, you can't backfill. And there's just the general pressure of people not getting into trades the way they did 40, 50 years ago. This is going to be an ongoing issue. And of course, now this was, you know, five years ago, I heard him say this and, you know, you, you are starting to see people that uh, just in retirement and it's tough to backfill. So this is that issue. Yeah, it's not going to rise and fall and be solved in the course of, uh, you know, a year. It's going to take a, a real kind of a shift in terms of where people are steered in terms of their, their jobs and, and careers. You know, one of the other interesting comments, and maybe we'll end it here, is, is you know, clients in Europe, yeah, maybe it's negative yields, but at least my money is deployed. And, <laughs> right? and, and, I, and I, I can't ever imagine any of our Canadian clients making that statement. But I just, I think it's just natural. And this is a theme that's come up, you know, over and over, Adam, with you and I, but just about the liquidity in the marketplace. And you can't sit on your hands forever if you are sitting on a, a boatload of cash that you need to get out and you've been tasked with, or your corporation has decided commercial real estate in some form or fashion is a component of your investment strategy. So at some point, you got to just go, okay, well, I, I can't be looking for my 20, 25% yield. I'm just, I'm just not going to achieve it. If I'm sitting here fighting people that are looking at 15% or 12% or 10% or whatever the number is, clearly it's not negative. And I, and I want to put that in perspective as lenders, right? Like Adam and I are doing low risk investments at 3%, right? So we're deploying capital at a 3% yield. And now, of course, we're at the bottom of the, of the capital stack. So the lowest part of the risk. But if we're putting our money out at 3%, it's probably not unreasonable that if you're putting your money out at 12 or 15%, but at taking higher risk, that's still a pretty good delta, right? For for the risk that's being taken. <laughs> Wait, we're in the wrong business. Is that what you're saying? Or, uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. I think that's uh, that's all our thoughts on the topic. It was interesting, and I mean, we said about a lot of guests, and you know, I mean it intentionally every time. But given the price volatility, I can see Darren coming back on shortly and having a lot new information to uh, to share because. Costing construction right now is a very rapidly shifting, moving target that uh, everybody's struggling to hit. So hope to see him again on here soon. Uh, thanks, everybody that listened uh, to this far in the show. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.